I want to direct your attention this morning to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 37 through 47. As uh, I do that, I say it's a delight to be with you. Uh, as, as Justin said, I still continue to teach at the Master's College. We come out in January for two weeks to do modules, and then again in May for a couple weeks to do modules, and then back in July for three weeks to do modules as well, and that's why we're here at this point. So I've been teaching six or seven hours a day for the last two weeks, and we cap all of that out off by coming here this morning and having the opportunity of sharing with you, dear folk, from the Word of God, and we're delighted to have that opportunity. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47 Now, when they heard this, that is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself." And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's just turn to God for prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, this is your word that we're going to be looking at. It was inspired by your Holy Spirit. Holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And we know that no scripture is of any private interpretation, but you're the one who gave them the word and they've recorded it for us. And as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of yourself. Since this is your word, you know exactly what you want to do with it. You know exactly what it means. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be faithful to the scriptures and that you would make all of us like the Bereans who received the scriptures with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Use your word for the purpose for which you gave it, to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. And we ask these things because we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray in his name and assured us that if we would ask anything in his name, you would do it in order that you might be glorified. Hear us, Lord, and speak to us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some time ago, when we were living out in the Santa Cruz area of California, I received a brochure in the mail from a local church. 
And on the front of that brochure, I found these words. If you took all the people who fell asleep in church and laid them end to end, and it had a picture of people lying on pews end to end, and then you open it, and on the inside it says um, uh, they would be probably be more comfortable. <laughs> and then <clears throat> the purpose of this brochure is to encourage people to come to their church, and they're trying to let people know what they do at their church. And they say in here at, and I won't mention the name of the church, but at such and such a church, if you come to our church, you will enjoy, number one, relaxed, friendly atmosphere, two, a lack of ritual boredom, three, upbeat music, four, dynamic youth activities, and this is the clincher of all, casual dress. I mean, that's what ought to bring you to church, because in church, you're going to be relaxed. In church, you're going to uh, not be bored. In church, you're going to have upbeat music. In church, you're going to have dynamic youth activities. Now, is that what the church is all about? Is that um, what an effective church is? A church where you have upbeat music, a church where you have casual dress, relaxed atmosphere, and all those things? You know, if you were to go out on the streets of Burbank, and ask people, what do you think the church should be? And what do you think the church should do? What do you think the church is? How should the church function? What are the marks or characteristics of an effective church? I think you'd hear a lot of different answers. But from many people, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, you would hear something like, if you want an effective church, what you need to do is find out what people want. And then design your messages and design your programs and build your buildings in such a way uh, that it's going to please people. Now I say, is that how we determine an effective church? Look, the Bible says the church is whose church? It's his church. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Bible says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. The Bible says that he's the head of the church. The Bible says that the body, which is called the church, is his body. And so if we want to know what an effective church is, since it's his church, we all ask God. God, what is an effective church? How do you want the church to function? What do you want the church to be? What do you want the church to do? What are the marks of an effective church or the characteristics of a true church of Jesus Christ? Well, if we were to ask the Lord that question and then turn to his word to find out the answer, I think we'd find the answer in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. I believe that's one of the purposes for which this passage is found in the word of God, so that we would understand what from God's perspective constitutes an effective church. What should be the marks of a church of Jesus Christ? And as I look at this particular passage, I see God saying that an effective church has four marks, or there are four characteristics of God's kind of church. First of all, I notice in this passage that God wants his church to be devoted to apostolic teaching. You see that in verse 42. We read of these early believers that they were devoted to apostolic teaching. Now, this church at Jerusalem began with apostolic preaching. 
Earlier in the chapter, Peter stood up to preach, and he preached, and as a result of his preaching, people were converted, uh, convicted, and they said, what are we going to do? Peter told them what they should do. They were baptized, and they were joined to the church by apostolic preaching. And what was true at the beginning of this church was true continuing as well. They continually devoted themselves to apostolic teaching. Now, these people loved to hear the Word of God preached. They were excited about it. They were enthusiastic about it. And what they wanted was not some man's idea, but what they wanted was what God had to say because they believed that the apostles had been inspired by God. And what we have in the Scriptures is a record of what God inspired the apostles to write. So we need to ask, if this church was devoted to apostolic teaching, and if this is what every church should be, then what is apostolic teaching? Now, we could say in a general sense that apostolic teaching contains everything that was found in the Word of God, because the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So apostolic teaching covered the whole Word of God. In Acts 20 and verse 27, Paul says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Whatever God has said, I've given it to you. So in general, that's what apostolic teaching is. But more specifically, if you want to know what apostolic teaching is like, you look at Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14 through Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. And as I look at his sermon, I see the essential elements of apostolic teaching. And it's by this that we should judge whether or not we are really interested in apostolic teaching. First of all, as I look at Peter's sermon, I notice that his sermon was relevant. In verse 14, we read, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Now, what that means is there was a situation there and these people were concerned about something. And Peter stood up and the message he brought related to what was going on in their lives. That's apostolic teaching. Just search through the book of Acts and note all of the sermons that you find in the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul preached on the um, Mars Hill in to the uh, philosophers and so forth, he related what he had to say to the people, to the audience to whom uh, he was speaking. It was relevant teaching. Every epistle in the New Testament was written because it was relevant to what was going on in the lives of the people. For example, when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he didn't simply say, now let's see, I don't have anything else to do today, so I think I'll just write those people over at Galatians a letter. Now what am I going to write? Oh yeah, I think I'll write to them about justification by grace through faith. I think I'll talk to them about the dangers of legalism and hopefully it'll it'll be relevant to them. No, he knew that the people at Galatia had a problem in understanding the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. He knew that they had a problem with legalism and so inspired by the Holy Spirit, he sat down and he wrote an epistle which related to a problem that they had in their lives. 
Same thing is true of the book of Colossians. Same thing is true of the book of Philippians. Same thing is true of the book of Ephesians. Same thing is true in terms of the book of Romans. Same thing is true of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and on and on throughout the rest of the Bible. Apostolic teaching is always relevant. It's not the preacher standing there saying, okay, here we are and here you are. Now, let's uh, look at the Word of God and get some information and get some facts. And uh, it wasn't just uh, something that uh, was given in a vacuum. No, apostolic preaching was, you know the needs of the people, and you use the Word of God, and you preach through the Word of God to the people. It isn't a lecture. It isn't just gaining information. Apostolic teaching was always relevant teaching. You think of most of the situations uh, in in the Gospels. I mean, the the book of Matthew was written for a purpose. The book of uh, Mark was written for a purpose. The book of Luke was written for a purpose. The book of of John was written for a purpose. John tells us what his purpose. He says, these things are written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. And he said, I've written everything I've written here because I have an evangelistic purpose. The people needed Christ. They needed to be evangelized. And so Paul said, or John said, well, I'm going to write a book that will bring people to Christ. Apostolic preaching does that. It's relevant to the needs of the people. It's making the word of God real to them. Secondly, apostolic teaching is biblical in nature. In verse 16... Peter says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. He has an extensive quote from the book of Joel, and then he explains and uh, helps them to understand how what Joel said relates to them. In verse 25, he says, for David says of him, and he quotes here from Psalm 16. And so that's biblical. And then a little bit later on, verse 34, he says, it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and then he quotes from uh, Psalm 110. So apostolic teaching is making the word of God relevant to the people. It's biblical in nature, but it's biblical in in the form of being very relevant. Thirdly, apostolic teaching is Christ-centered. You look through Peter's sermon, he just continued to talk about Jesus Christ. Verse 22, he says, Jesus the Nazarene. And then he tells us something about Jesus. And then in verse 23, he talks about the crucifixion of Christ. In verse 24, he talks about the resurrection of Christ. In verse 25, he says, now Psalm 16 is talking about Jesus. And then later on in verse 34, he says Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus. So if you're going to have apostolic teaching, it's always going to be focused and centered on Jesus Christ. And then fourthly... As we look at this passage, we see that apostolic teaching is specific and it's very personal in application. I've already intimated that when I said apostolic teaching isn't just giving a lecture. It isn't just passing on information. It's very specific and very personal in its application. Read through Peter's sermon or read through some of the other sermons in the book of Acts. And one little word you'll find used again and again. You, 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 you. I mean, he didn't say they, he didn't say them that much. What he said, I'm talking to you. This relates to you. I have you in mind when I'm saying this. And so 
He says, uh, look, in verse 22, he says, uh, Jesus performed a lot of signs and miracles in your midst. You know that. And then in verse 23, he says, you nailed him to a cross. And then as you uh, come on down through there again and again, he is making it clear that he's talking to them. His message is very pointed in that he wants to make them aware that he's not talking about somebody out there. He's talking to them. And another characteristic of apostolic preaching, which uh, a lot of people uh, are opposed to today, is apostolic preaching is authoritative. It's not making suggestions. It's not saying, look, here's something that maybe you ought to consider. Or let me give you a word of advice. Or in my opinion, may I make a suggestion to you? Now, just think about it. You know, and if you think it's true, okay. If you don't think it's true, no. Apostolic teaching said what I'm teaching you is the truth. And so they preached with authority. There was no uncertainty. He said, this Jesus whom you crucified, I want you to know who he is. It's no question about it. He is the Lord and he is the Christ. When they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, I want to tell you what to do. You need to repent and be baptized on account of the forgiveness of sins and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was always authoritative. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 15, Titus wrote to, or Paul wrote to Titus who was a, pastor in on the island of Crete and he said now these things I want you to speak I want you to exhort and I want you to rebuke with all authority let no man despise you in other words Timothy don't look up there and just uh, him and Hall but you get up there and you preach the word and you preach it with authority we read of the early uh, apostles in Acts 4 verse 13, that one of the things that amazed the people to whom they were ministering was the fact that they spoke with boldness. And you'll find that word used again and again in reference to the apostles, that they were bold. And when Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, and he talks about the uh, full armor of God, you know, the girdle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, uh, the sh- feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. After he said all that about the being clothing themselves, he says, I want you to pray for all the saints with all perseverance in the spirit. And uh, by the way, pray for me. You know what Paul asked them to pray for him about? He asked them to pray that God would give him boldness to make known the mystery of the gospel as he ought to make it known. So he was praying that, that that God, asking them to pray that God would give him that kind of boldness that comes with authority. So apostolic preaching is authoritative. You know why? Apostolic preaching is authoritative because they got their message from God. And God is the God of truth. So if they were sure that what they were saying was according to what God had said, then they could preach with authority. They weren't preaching their own ideas. They weren't preaching their own concepts. They were preaching the word of God. And so they didn't get together to dialogue. They didn't get together to debate. Oh, let's discuss. Here's an idea. Let's discuss it. It's like a lot of Bible study groups get together and they say, what do you think about this? What do you think? Well, who cares what they think about it? Let's, let's find out what God is saying. That's the important thing. Not what I think about it, not what you think about it, but what does God mean? 
That's the most important thing. Not what does it say to me, but what does God mean in what he says? And then how does what God says apply to me? That's apostolic teaching. It isn't pooling your ignorance and hoping that you come up with something. (laughs) See, apostolic teaching is authoritative preaching and teaching because it's preaching and teaching the truths of God. Now, it was to this kind of teaching that the early church was continually devoting themselves. These people, hear me now, didn't get together to be entertained. No, no. Oh, that was so enjoyable. No, that's not why they got together. They didn't get together to talk about their feelings. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? No, they didn't get together and talk about their feelings. Let's have a sensitivity group. No, no, no. They didn't get together to talk about their respective views on various subjects. What's your opinion about this? What's your... No, that's not why they got together. They didn't get together to discuss the ideas of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or Epicurus. What they got together for was to hear apostolic teaching, teaching that was in accordance with the Word of God. This church was built on and built by apostolic teaching. Everything that the church was and everything that the church did was generated, guided, and governed by the teachings of the apostles. Do you hear that? Everything they did was generated by, guided by, and governed by apostolic teaching. If it was in accordance with apostolic teaching, they said, great, we accept it. If it was out of accord with apostolic teaching... They didn't say, well, the experts say this is the way it ought to be. No, they rejected it because apostolic teaching was their standard. And if it was not supported by the word of God, even if it didn't contradict the word of God, they weren't that much interested in it because they believed that in the scriptures we have everything we need for living and for godliness and that God in his word says he sanctifies us by his truth. And where we find that truth, we find his truth in the word of God. And so one of the marks of an effective church, as far as God is concerned, is you have a church that is utterly, completely committed to apostolic teaching. And that church is filled with people who love to hear the word of God. And they won't settle for anything but and anything less than the word of God. Secondly, as we look at Acts chapter 2... We see that God's kind of church is a God-centered, God-conscious, God-dependent community of people. Verse 43 says that everyone in this church kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, what does it mean to have a sense of awe? Well, it means that they were consciously aware of the presence of God. These people are aware of the presence of God. You see, they didn't get together just to is, look, meet Mary or John or Joe or whoever. You know, they got together, and while they were together, they were aware of the fact that they were in the presence of God. They were God-conscious, God-dependent group of people, and they stood in awe of God. For them, God was majestic, and God was glorious. God was transcendent. The dictionary defines awe in this way. It's an emotion of mingled reverence, dread, and wonder. They reverence God. 
There was a sense in which they were, uh, they dreaded God. There was a sense in which they were wonder with God. It also says that awe is respect tinged with fear. God to them was not buddy-buddy. I mean, they didn't treat God as though he were someone who was on their level. And uh, they realized that God was glorious and majestic. And when you uh, go through the word of God, you find again and again that when people were aware of the presence of God, you know what they did? They fell on their faces. In the presence of God, the cherubim and seraphim, they're covering their faces and covering their feet. And they're constantly flying, indicating that they're ready to do whatever God wants them to say. But they realized that when they were in the presence of God, they were in the presence of glory and majesty. And, of course, you have the account of the publican who was in the temple. And he was so aware of the presence of God that he didn't come strutting up to the altar, dancing up to the altar... He stood afar off and he smote upon his breast. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven because he wasn't worthy to look into the face of God. No, he stood there humbled by the presence of this great God and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, he was in awe of God. Now, every Christian and every church... Church should be a God-centered, God-conscious group of people or individual. Now, what does it mean to be a God-centered, God-conscious individual? Or especially, what does it mean to be a God-conscious, God-centered person or church? Well, let me give you six characteristics of a God-centered church. And this, these apply, of course, to individuals as well. One, a man-centered church. I want to distinguish between a man-centered church and a God-centered church. One, a man-centered church will follow biblical traditions that make people more comfortable because of their familiarity. You know, if you ask them, why do you do that? Well, I don't know. That's what we've always done. Even if what they're doing has no basis in the Word of God, I'm comfortable with that because we've always done it that way. You've probably... Heard uh, about that book, uh, the uh, uh, last words of the church. We never did it that way before. And, you know, it's uh, just uh, tradition, tradition, tradition. That's a man-centered church where they're more concerned about tradition than they are about what God has to say in his word. A God-centered church will jettison, it'll scrap unbiblical traditions and be wary of any traditions they develop in the church that somehow obscure the simplicity of of Jesus Christ, that turn you away from the primary focus on Jesus Christ. Secondly, a man-centered church will hesitate to address certain doctrines. A man-centered church says, well, look, um, we want to make people comfortable. We want people to enjoy coming to church. So we're not going to preach anything that might offend them. And so they determine what they preach on the basis of whether or not somebody's going to be offended. They kind of use the cafeteria system in reference to the Bible. I like this, I don't like that, I take what I like, I leave what I don't like. That's a man-centered church. We have no right to do that because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And all Scripture is profitable. And who are we to say what is profitable and what is not profitable? A man-centered church avoids doctrines because they might be offensive to some members, 
But a God-centered church will boldly and faithfully proclaim the whole counsel of God. Whatever God says in His Word, whatever doctrine is found in the Word of God, a God-centered church will preach. Paul, as I said earlier in Acts 20, 27, said, I am not guilty. I have delivered myself from my obligation because I have preached to you the whole counsel of God. Thirdly, a man-centered church will choose worship and teaching styles primarily on the basis of people's preferences. In other words, they determine what they do in the worship service. Oh, people enjoy that. They like that. It really uh, makes them feel good. And uh, that's how they determine whether or not a song is good or whether or not what they do is good. Do people like it? That's not the way you determine what's right. At least it's not the way we should. The main thing is... We want to conform our services as closely as we can to the biblical model, regardless of what people may think. We don't do things just to offend people, but at the same time, we happen to believe that what God says is the way to do it is the best way. And that God really knows what is the best way. And so we want to make sure that in terms of what we do in our worship times, that we're doing what would please God and honor God. Number four, a man-centered church will encourage people to receive counsel from ungodly experts. In other words, uh, if somebody has a problem, well, here's a a, a person over there. He's not a Christian. He's not going to base his counseling on on the Word of God. And yet, send them over there to get help from that particular person. And by so doing, we're saying God has nothing to say about that. God doesn't have any help for you in that particular area. So you go over there. Or something similar to that is here's somebody who is a professing Christian, but he doesn't base his entire counsel on the word of God. He throws in a little bit uh, or in many, most cases a lot of what the secularists have to say, Freud and Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow and B.F. Skinner and so forth. We just kind of have a toss salad thing. We, we throw a little bit of Bible in there and usually we pull the verses out of context. And then we throw uh, the ideas of man in there and we mix them up and we serve them to people. And we're sending people to get help from those who really don't believe that the Bible is sufficient. Now, in Isaiah 8 and verse 20, God says to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. And as I mentioned before, the Bible says we have everything we need for living and for godliness in the scriptures. Now, everything covers just about everything, doesn't it? (laughs) Everything we need for living, that's what we need in terms of the horizontal living in this world. And godliness has to do with our relationship with God. Now, that verse is either true or the Bible isn't true. That's why I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and the superiority of Scripture for understanding people, understanding their problems, and solving their problems. I can't believe the Bible. You see, my choice is, if that's not true, then the Bible isn't inerrant. Because it says it's sufficient. And if I say it's not sufficient, then I am ignore, either ignoring what the Bible says about itself, or I don't believe what the Bible says about itself. And so a man-centered church will encourage people to receive counsel from ungodly experts. 
but a God-centered church will point them to the sufficient answers and superior answers that are provided by our jealous Lord in his word. The Bible says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the, what? Ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. We need to hear the warning of Colossians 2 and verse 8, which says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the ideas or traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Jesus Christ. Number five, a man-centered church will not practice church discipline in regard to sinning members, members who are either living ungodly lives in terms of their morality is concerned, or members who have been greatly in error as far as doctrine is concerned. They reject the teachings of the Word of God. And a man-centered church won't practice church discipline because they say, hey, we're going to upset people. I mean, they may have relatives in our church, and if we practice church, they're, they're going to leave. Or there are others who are going to get upset with us, and, and what's going to happen is they're going to stop giving. And we need money if we're going to do the Lord's work and pay for buildings and missionaries and all that kind of thing. And so they use man's reasoning to reject what God says is the responsibility of the church. In Matthew 18, the Lord says if your brother sins, and that means he continues to sin, it's a pattern in his life. It's not something he does, he repents of and and gets his life straightened out, but it's something he continues to do. If you see a brother who really is sinning, it's not a matter of preference where you like this and he likes that, but he really is violating the word of God either in his thinking or in his living. If you see somebody like that, the Bible says it's your obligation to go to that brother and talk to him about it, to hopefully, by the power of the Spirit, promote repentance so he gets his life and his thinking straightened out. And if after a period of time he says, get out of my face, I don't want to hear from you again, don't ever talk to me about it again, I, I, I don't want to hear about that again, if it comes to that place where he rejects you, the Bible says you don't stop there. At that point, you find one or two other godly people, and you bring other godly people. This is where counseling comes in. You bring them to your pastors or elders or whatever, and you get your pastors or elders or some other godly people involved for the purpose of promoting repentance and change in that person's life. And then, if he rejects that counsel and says, I don't want to do it, I, I absolutely refuse to do what God wants me to do, I absolutely refuse to change my way of thinking, whatever, the Bible says you're still not done. At that particular point, since that person has rejected godly counsel and he has stonewalled you, at that point, the Bible says you take it to the church. In other words, you tell the church about how this person is refusing to obey God. And you ask the church to pray for this sin. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 18. I heard somebody say, you know, this church discipline business, uh, that isn't something that our loving Jesus would do. Well, it's actually it's Jesus who said it. And so Jesus said, look, if this goes on and you've done everything you can, two or three other people have counseled and he's still rejected, then it's your responsibility out of love for Christ and out of love for that other person. To tell it to the church, ask the church to pray for him, ask the church to exhort him, ask the church to try to persuade him. 
And after a period of time, if you've done that, and that person still is unwilling to repent, unwilling to change, then the Bible says you disfellowship him from the church, and you treat him as a heathen and a publican. You regard him as an unsaved person, because he's behaving as an unsaved person. Now, you can't judge that person's heart, because you can't see his heart. But all you and I can judge is his behavior. And if he's functioning as an unbeliever, then uh, since he's behaving as an unbeliever, Jesus said you regard him as an unbeliever. And that means he's put out of church membership, and that means you pray for him, and you plead with him, and you evangelize him. Try to bring him to Jesus Christ. Now, uh, some churches won't do that kind of thing. I mean, there are hundreds of churches, I know many of them, across the United States of America who don't do that kind of thing. I was in a pastor's meeting some time ago, and I heard all the objections that pastors were giving as far as why their church didn't practice church discipline. And I want to tell you what that was indicating was that it was a man-centered church. Because a God-centered church is more concerned about what God says and thinks than It is about what man thinks or even about how people are going to respond to that. And number six, a man-centered church will have very little emphasis on prayer. You can tell if a church is a man-centered church by the way the people regard prayer. You know, we really believe, as James 4 says, you have not because you ask not. And when you go through the Bible, you find the apostles praying again and again. You find 16 instances, for example, in the Gospels where Jesus prayed. You find many instances where the apostles prayed, the early Christians prayed. In Acts 6 and verse 4, the apostles said, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There were two main things that the apostles did. These were priorities for the apostles. They ministered the word. And you know what ministry of the word is? Ministry is preaching, but ministry of the word is counseling as well. Some people have the idea that when it says they devoted themselves to the ministry of the word, oh, that means they preached all the time. Yeah, they preached every opportunity they had. But whenever you present the word of God, whether it's in a public situation like this or whether it's in an individual situation in your study or in your living room or whatever, you're ministering the word of God. So wherever what they went, whatever they did, the apostles ministered the word of God and encouraged others to do the same. But that's not all they did. Another thing that they were devoted to was prayer because they believed that their ministry of the word would be ineffective unless God did something. Paul knew that all of his intelligence and all of his education and all of his persuasiveness and all of his knowledge would not change people. God changes people. And he changes people in response to prayer. When the Lord said you have a problem with laborers, what should you do? Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust forth laborers into his harvest field. When you have a problem with anxiety or worry, do you know what the Lord said you should do? Pray! Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And as a result of your prayer, the right kind of prayer, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Again and again in the Bible, God makes it clear that 
in prayer, we are humbling ourselves. It's the person who's proud. I can do this on my own. I can control it. I can make people change on my own. He doesn't need to pray because he thinks he can do it on his own. But prayer is an expression of our humility. It's our, an expression of our dependence upon God that is not by might nor by power, but by thy spirit. And so you find God-centered people, God-conscious people, who are constantly praying. They're praying without ceasing. They're bringing everything in everything, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 6, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And if you have a church that is God-centered and God-conscious, you'll have people who realize that we need to pray about everything. We need to pray about, yeah, our pastor's gone through seminary. He knows Greek. He knows Hebrew. He knows theology. He knows, uh, you know, uh, church history and all that. But all of that, and he has some oratorical ability or whatever, but all of that isn't going to change people. He can go through all of that, and yet nobody's going to be changed unless God comes and works. He can plant and he can water, but only God can give the increase. And so if you're a God-conscious and God-dependent person or church, you'll make much of this matter of prayer. Now, these people in Acts chapter 2, these people in Acts chapter 2, and I just looked at my watch and realized how long I had preached already. (laughs) Is it really 12, 13? I'm sorry. I'll finish this point. I guess we won't get to the other two points. These people in Acts chapter 2 kept feeling a sense of awe. And they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. That's what it says. It says they continued steadfastly in prayer. You see, for them, God was not merely an abstract philosophical concept. He was not a mere doctrine. He wasn't a mere logical deduction. That's what he is to some people. They look around them and they know that our world couldn't have come into existence by chance. They know that something doesn't come into existence out of nothing. They see order all around them and they say order doesn't come out of nothing. And so they say there must be a God. So you ask them, do you believe in God? Yeah, and they give you all these philosophical reasons as to why they believe in God. That's not what these people did. God was not a logical deduction to them. God was an environment or atmosphere in which they lived. They didn't just believe some things about God. They believed God. What about you? Do you believe some things about God or do you believe God? They didn't just know some things about God. They knew God. Is God real to you? Do you know God? For them, God was not a mere tack-on to life, an addenda or a footnote or an appendix at the back of the book of their life. He was their life. In him they lived, they moved, and had their being. God was the atmosphere and environment in which they lived. Wherever they were, they knew God was there. Whenever it was, morning, noon, or night, or in the middle of the night, they woke up, God was there. With whomever they were, you know, they were with other people, but they were aware even more that God was there. Whatever they were doing, whether they were eating, drinking, or whatever. They were aware of the presence of God. They knew something of God's transcendence and also of his imminence. They were a God-centered, God-conscious, God-dependent people. Now, the church of Jerusalem was a community of people who feared God 
And for them, worship was not simply something they did on Sunday morning. Worship was a lifestyle. In Matthew 4.10, Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And we should be worshiping God. We should be aware of his presence and, and be aware that everything we do, wherever we are, whenever it is, God is there. I love this passage in Genesis chapter 5 about Enoch. And it says, Enoch walked with God. In other words, wherever Enoch went, he knew God was there. He was aware of the presence of God. Is that true of you? That wherever you are, there you, you, there's that conscious awareness of the presence of God. You're thinking about God, and God is at the center of your thinking. Back in Psalm 10, the psalmist is describing godliness as over against ungodliness. And you know what the psalmist says about the characteristics of an ungodly person? It says, God is not in all his thoughts. And you know what godliness is? God is in all my thoughts. He's at the center of my thinking. Everything I do, I am aware of his presence. And my most important concern is, Lord, what do you want? Lord, what should I say here? Lord, what should I do here? Lord, I want to please you. I want to live to your glory and for your pleasure. That's a God-centered person. And we, we all, and that's what Paul meant when he said we need to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. We need to train ourselves so that we're, our life is oriented toward God. And the greatest influence and the greatest impact in our lives is our awareness of the presence of God. So that like Enoch, we go around and we're aware of God's presence. That'll, you know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Do you know what that means? It means that if you have a deep reverence and awe of God, you'll run from evil. And if somebody is playing around with sin, I can tell you one thing about him. If I'm playing around with sin, I can tell you one thing about me. I don't fear God the way I ought. Because if I feared God and I was aware of how great... And glorious God is, if I was aware of that, I'd run from sin. I'd stay away from sin. The fear of the Lord does that. Not because somebody is making me feel guilty. Not because somebody's twisting my arm. No, I, I just do it because God is so important to me. And I fear him. And I don't want to displease him. So, what is an effective church? It's absolutely devoted to apostolic teaching. And secondly, it's a community of people who are God-conscious and God-dependent and God-centered. The other two things which I won't have time to develop are uh, uh, God's kind of church is a community of people who really care for one another. You can see that in Acts chapter 2. And are really willing to sacrifice to meet the needs of other people. And thirdly, God's kind of church is a witnessing community because they went everywhere praising God talking about God, living for God. And the result was, verse 47, that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Why? Because these people witnessed by their lives the transformation that the gospel brings, and they witnessed with their lips about how great God is and how wonderful he is and how gracious he is, and they talked about Jesus Christ all the time. We began today by asking the question, what should the church be? What should the church do? What are the characteristics or marks of an effective church? Well, these are the four characteristics.
Number one, a God-honoring church will be a church that is absolutely committed to apostolic teaching and will not be satisfied with anything less or anything more. And secondly, there are people who really are God-centered, God-conscious. To them, God is the most important. God is real to them. And thirdly, there are people who really care for one another, and there are people who just can't keep their mouths shut about Jesus. And they live and remind people of Jesus, just as the early disciples did in Acts 4.13. People took knowledge of them that they had been with whom? With Jesus. Why? Because there was something about them that reminded those people, yeah, hey, that's what Jesus was like. And that's what it means to be a Christian. You know the word Christian means? A little Christ. And we are to reflect Christ. And as we become more and more like him, that's what's going to convict people. That's what's going to appeal to people and attract people to come to Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning to look into your word. Lord, I don't have the power to make any of this real to me or to anybody else. I can say a lot of words. I can exposit scripture. But, Lord, I'm aware that unless you come and minister it to our hearts and convict us where we need to be convicted, reprove us where we need to be reproved, correct us where we need to be corrected, and train us, Lord, so that this might become a lifestyle for us. Bless this church. Thank you for it. Thank you for its pastors. Thank you for the people. And I just pray that you would encourage them and enrich them as they seek to be that kind of church that would really exalt the Lord Jesus and make an impact on the world around us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.